Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome one and welcome all to the Court of the Trashy Royals. Hey friends, my name's Alicia. We are back again this week. Stacy. we're going a little further in Europe this week. We're leaving ye old England. You've got something a little bit different for us today. Absolutely. This is from a time of uh, the flowering of republicanism in the Dutch Republic. Uh, and it is the story of the time that the Dutch ate their prime minister. I'm sorry, the story about the time the Dutch ate their prime minister? The time, like, the, time the Dutch ate their prime minister. Like food. They Not all of them, but yes. Wow. And his brother. Oh, my. It looks like we are getting trashy roiled this week. Stacy. let us in on to the remarkable story of the tragically fated Johan DeWitt. All right, Stacey, the time the Dutch ate their prime minister. This is a new one on me. It's pretty gory, but uh, it takes us a, a bit to get there. I want to I wanna start by popping us back to the year 1519. Oh, one of my favorite years. This is, a, this is a century and a half or so before the eating incident of the prime minister. In 1519, Charles V became the Holy Roman Emperor, which made him first among equals among Europe's many Catholic monarchs. The empire itself, the Holy Roman Empire, which originally purported to be a continuation of the Roman Empire after all of that ended, was under Charles V, Chucky V, an expansive, non-contiguous stretch of land that included modern Germany, Spain, parts of modern Austria, Hungary, Poland, and on its western edge, the Low Countries, the today's Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg. Basically, if you exempt France and Portugal from the map and like parts of Italy, you've got the bulk of the Holy Roman. It was a big, big, big stretch of land. Enormous deal. HRE. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it was even called the empire on which the sun never sets, a grouping of territories that he began to inherit from his noble slash monarch grandparents and parents when he was just six years old. Ah. I love a six-year-old king of things, but anyway, by the time he was 20, the full parcel was officially his. So aside from being Holy Roman Emperor, he was also the King of Spain, through which he also had holdings in the Americas. He was the Archduke of Austria, a position that has never had any bad outcomes. And he was the Lord of the Netherlands slash the Duke of Burgundy. I think at the time it was the Burgundian Netherlands. In this period, what we're calling the Netherlands was a collection of about 17 different duchies spanning the modern, the Benelux countries, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg. There was some some of France, uh, Lorraine and Burgundy were in there. I think there was a smidge of what is today Germany. With so much land to his name, I mean, literally all over the world, but so much of Europe in his name, 
he was positioning himself as a modern-day Charlemagne. You just got to grab the celebrity name. It's like when American politicians run to be the next Ronald Reagan. Anyway. Well, Charles V had a lot to overcome. Are we going to talk about Charles V's mama? One of my very favorite why don't people you, in this time frame. Why don't you mention his mother? So 1519, we are fully in the reign of King Henry VIII, mm-hmm. who is married to Catherine of Aragon. Yes. The youngest child of Ferdinand and Isabella. Of Spain. Of Aragon and Castile. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. And Spain, yes. It all, it all kind of goes together with Ferdinand and Isabella. But Ferdinand and Isabella had... Another daughter, long before Catherine of Aragon, who married Henry VIII, that daughter was Joanna, or as known in history, Juana the Mad. Juana the Mad is Catherine of Aragon's sister, who marries Philip the Fair. This is Philip I. And when Philip the Fair dies, Juana carts around his dead body all over the she cannot bear to let her husband go you've told me about this fairly sad story we're gonna talk about one of the mad for sure but one of the mad's daddy ferdinand is so angry about all of this that ferdinand ends up locking juana away for like 47 years of her life just locks her up in an insane asylum but she's not really all that mad So for my Tudor people, for my English history people, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, is the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. Okay. So this is where it got a little dicey with all of Henry VIII trying to appeal to divorce Catherine, his first wife. Mm -hmm. All of those pleas were going to her nephew. Gotcha. Everything is connected. I'm sorry. I did not mean to digress you on that story, but I would be remiss if I did not talk about the Tudor Charles V little connection that will come into play in future stories. There is plenty of interplay with England in the oh, story. Oh, goody. It's my favorite. Geopolitics has always been a thing. All anyway, right, so let's do it. So the modern day Charlemagne there in the 1520s uh, took kind of an unusual approach to monarching, I believe. He never declared a capital city for himself in the empire. And so instead, he spent much of his time just traveling within and to various places in his domains. He was also very into warfare. And so he was variously fighting Ottoman expansion in the south, numerous wars with France. Everyone always wants to fight the French and attempts to defend Catholicism from the Protestant Reformation, which almost perfectly overlaid Chucky's life. Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg. Maybe that happened, unclear, in 1517. So so it really is, like, I mean, as, as Charles comes into power, like, the world is changing in a very core way. The 16th century is really exciting. So after 1521, just two years into his reign, it became illegal for citizens of the Holy Roman Empire to practice or promote Protestantism. No. But apparently within his own realms, as long as everybody stayed loyal to his causes, he typically wasn't doing purges, things like that. Like, it was sort of a live and let live thing, I think, as long as, I'm sure if you were discreet about your dissenting views, for instance. There were some instances where he had no choice but to battle Protestant forces, such as when in 1527, Lutheran members of his own armies mutinied and sacked Rome. Ooh. Whoa. 
In another instance, a group of Lutheran German princes had banded together as the Schmalkaldic League, rolls off the tongue, in order to gain religious freedom promises from, you know, still Catholic leaders nearby. These were left mostly to themselves. Uh, They would do stuff like confiscate church property, but for the most part, they seemed pretty intent on not causing enough trouble for Charles to actually come and intervene. It did, though, eventually require intervention. In 1546 and 1547, the Holy Roman Empire fought the Schmalkaldic War against the leaders of like 30 cities and regions in and around Germany. And though Charles's forces won, by this point, Lutheranism had been really well embedded. Firmly in, taking hold, in the culture you bet. yeah. For like 20 plus years. So when Charles issued a decree that would have reintegrated the Protestants into the Catholic Church, it caused another rebellion because they just did not want that. And this time Charles lost. Uh-oh. So the troubles would end in one of Charles V's last acts before he began abdicating his various thrones. The Peace of Augsburg, signed in 1555, effectively legalized Lutheranism within the Holy Roman Empire, but it was not legalized in the way we would think of it today. Basically, if the prince who ruled whatever little sovereign state you lived in was a Lutheran, hey, congrats, you are too now. Right. And if that prince was Catholic, huzzah, get ready for some Latin mass, y'all. The Augsburg piece specified a grace period during which religious dissenters in a place were allowed to emigrate to one that conformed. So they could still abuse people of other faiths within their domains. It wasn't like a religious liberty decree. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. The freedom of conscience thing really just extended to the the richie riches. Everybody else had to share their conscience. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So my overarching point is that Charles V, while officially Catholic and anti-Protestant, actually seems to have largely left his local leaders to their own devices on this topic, probably so that he could count on them when he needed troops to fight the French or the Ottomans. As Charles neared the end of his life, he began a series of abdications that left his various holdings in the hands of his son, Philip II of Spain, uh, and his brother, Ferdinand. We're going to see Philip II of Spain in England in no time at all. Oh, we are, yes. He has a very important bride. Well, and perhaps he learns a few things from that bride about Protestants, about how to... Kill them? Yes. The Duchy of Milan and all of the Netherlands, the 17 provinces of what are now the Benelux countries and a bit of France, were absorbed into Spain's holdings. And this is where the trouble began for the mixed populations of Catholic and Protestant residents of the Low Countries. Philip II became King of Spain upon his father's abdication in 1556. Charles V went out and lived his last year or two in a monastery. It seems like not a bad way to go. Like, he'd been fighting a lot, so... Quieter life, out with the monks. Yeah. So interestingly for your interests, Alicia, in 1556, Philip II was not just king of Spain and Portugal. He was also the king of England and Ireland by virtue of his marriage to Mary I of England, who, of course, is known to history as Bloody Mary because of her enthusiasm for slaughtering English Protestants. And this would be the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Yep. Mary Tudor was a cousin of Charles V, and it was he who encouraged the 37-year-old new queen after she defeated forces loyal to Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen. Oh, I love it. I have chills. To slide on into his Catholic son's DMs. 
so she did. There were a lot of trade-offs for that marriage, though, that had to happen. Oh, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, Philip had been married before, but he was left a widower. Father of Europe, John of Gaunt, was an ancestor of both of these people. And while England was decidedly not thrilled at the prospect of a Spanish Catholic Habsburg (laughs) king... Not at all. Mary sure was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was going to reverse the Reformation in England. It was... No, Mary was hot, hot for cousin. (laughs) Yes. Early in her monarchy, she issued a proclamation that stated that her subjects were not compelled to follow her religion. Henry VIII, of course, had broken from the church and created the Church of England, and many things had happened. But then Mary essentially went about attempting to reverse all of her father's work, the English Reformation, and to reinstitute papal authority over the Church of England. Oh, yeah. Heresy Acts, some of which were almost 200 years old, were reestablished, and Mary started burning prominent Protestants at the stake, even at least one who had recanted and sworn allegiance to the Catholic Church again. The English people were aghast. I think even Catholic Britons, while certainly relieved to have a Catholic monarch again, were in a real, but not like that, kind of place with it all. One of Philip's own religious advisors was like, No bueno, but Mary persisted. Fortunately, her reign was short, ending with her death, maybe from cancer, maybe from influenza in 1558. I think it's unclear. Strange life, short reign. Liberated from his role as king of England, because that was part of the deal, is that he would only be king during her lifetime, and this loveless marriage that he had entered into for political reasons, Philip II was able to turn his attention more fully to repressing the Protestant population of the 17 provinces, pushing anti-heresy policies onto a public that was pretty open-minded in its view of religious conscience. This was during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, and it got very, very, very bad in the 17 provinces. You know, I've always heard that nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, more than just a Monty Python skit, there were beheadings, there were people burned at the stake, there were people buried alive, Mm. and confessions were obtained via unspeakable torture. They, They would just leave bodies hanging as a warning. I mean, there were just, there were human corpses rotting all over the place. What a time to be alive or dead. Yeah. Dutch nobles tried to step in to calm things down, asking, for instance, that Philip... Perhaps stop making it a capital offense to discuss the teachings of Martin Luther and John Calvin. Philip was unimpressed by the squishy Dutch aristocrats and their tolerant view of religion and their (laughs) zany notions of civil liberties and constitutional protections. Several years of gentle asks and peaceful protests went unheeded until in August 1566, uh, this is so good, Popular anger boiled over, and Calvinist adherents attacked Catholic Church properties and smashed statuaries because they felt that violated the commandment against graven images. The rioting spread throughout the country and is now known as the Iconoclastic Fury, which is absolutely my bluegrass Gregorian chant cover band name. Iconoclastic Fury. Iconoclastic Fury. Wow. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get your your mandolin out for Iconoclastic Fury. Some you. Ukuleles, probably Mm -hmm. banjo. Wow, love it. And because people have always been stupid, Philip ultimately dispatched a close advisor, the Duke of Alba, to go really crush those unruly heretics, thus kicking off what is known as the Eighty Years' War. Yikes, 80 years. 
Yes. So among the Dutch nobility, William the Silent of <laughs> the House of Orange. Okay. Oranya, a subdivision of the German Nassau noble dynasty, was a prominent political and military player. He would be known to history as William I. He was never a king, but the nobles who, again, had been asking Philip to chill it out a bit for quite some time now generally rallied around an unlikely sort of slogan. Uh, they called themselves the, I apologize for my Dutch mispronunciation, but the uh, Hoisen faction or the beggars. Okay. And they're, again, these are the rich, right? So when the nobles had first begun pushing for leniency in the religious persecution, a kind of condescending Dutch advisor had comforted an angry Spanish administrator by saying, after hearing their demands, fear not. They are nothing but beggars. Uh. Notably, uh, the beggars assembled something like a naval force, which the the water hoisen or the water beggars and this this sort of naval, probably more like a raiding party, I would okay. think. But it gave the Dutch some early victories against the Spanish along the coast. But again, this war went on for 80 years. So without dwelling too much on the details of this long period of conflict between Spain and Benelux, What's important to note is that there was a growing sense of national identity separate from Spanish rule, and that it was tolerant of religious differences, something that would become key to the national identity of the modern Netherlands, however imperfectly implemented. The United Provinces declared their independence from Spain in 1581, and in 1588, having failed to reach consensus on who should be their sovereign or their monarch or whatever, they just skipped that part and declared themselves the Dutch Republic. Fantastic. Well, Spain is fighting over with England in the Spanish Armada in yes. 1588. Yes. Spain this... is otherwise distracted. Yes. And Elizabeth I is on the throne. She will dispatch troops to help the Dutch in this fight. I don't know that they were instrumental in anything. But but yeah, the, again, geopolitics. It's fascinating. Using proxy wars to wrong foot your chief adversaries like this this has all been happening always i do want to especially for american listeners explain if, if we don't know um republicanism is the opposite of monarchy in this context so if you were a republican in the dutch republic you were trying basically to prevent members of the house of orange from achieving main political power okay because that would keep power spread more broadly among the nobility. Like these old families who had been running, you know, the city of Amsterdam since the early medieval period, whatever, they didn't want to answer to a king. They wanted to maintain control of the ports and the inflows and outflows of cash. And like they, they didn't, they didn't want to get meddled with. So Okay, that makes sense. So that's sort of what we're talking. We're not talking about like the American Republican Party. It's conceptually just... It is an antidote to monarchy, if you will. Okay. So this is a great spot to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we will talk about the 80-year war for independence and what followed. Fantastic. We'll resume court in just a moment. All right. So, Alicia, the war for independence lasted 80 years and had a number of phases, including a 12-year truce, because why not? This did not formally end until the Peace of Munster in 1648, but by now there had been decades of internal Dutch Republic politics, huge growth in Dutch economic and cultural power, and an ongoing factional tension between those who favored a Republican oligarch-led 
governmental structure spreading power across the noble class and those who wanted to be led by whichever William of Orange was on hand at the time. They were not all named William, but mostly they do like that name. <laughs> so William the Silent, mentioned before, of Orange, William I, who had helped kick off the Eighty Years' War and funded the Water Hooser, the Water Beggars Force that had led to those early victories, had been assassinated in 1584. Yikes. Lucky for him, and this is a bit unusual for House of Orange, he did have sons. So one of his sons, Morris of Orange, I believe in Dutch it's Moritz. Maurice Morris. Yes. yes succeeded him as the Stadtholder, which is a the governor title. Um, he was governor of the two most important provinces in the Dutch Republic. Thankfully, he was a capable military leader on top of, you know, everything else he was. Problematically, however, what he was not great at was having sons. And so when he died in 1625 without children, it was his youngest brother, William the Silent's last son, um, who succeeded him. This is Frederick Henry. This is our break from Williams, but they all come back. <laughs> so Frederick Henry succeeds Morris, Maurice Moritz as the Prince of Orange and as Stadtholder now of five of the now seven provinces that have kind of organized under the banner of the Eighty Years' War. I think the Spanish had taken much of the southern part. And he concentrated power, as one does. Frederick pretty much oversaw the Dutch Golden Age. Rembrandt was born in 1606. Mm. And, you know, Frederick Henry would eventually win the war and would negotiate the Peace of Munster. He was probably the pinnacle of House of Orange power in the era, but he died in 1647 before the peace treaty had been adopted. His son, William II, Prince of Orange, opposed the treaty ending the Eighty Years' War and apparently engaged in some kind of shady side negotiations with France in an attempt to grab some more territory for himself and centralize his power and all of this. This did not endear him to those old families, the regents, who, you know, they were very powerful. They controlled the big cities. They were not a fan. Not popular. No. In fact, the regents of Amsterdam, and by now Amsterdam was one of the world's premier trading capitals, so the regents wanted the military reduced so they could get on with making their money, paying less taxes, not fighting with the army over the labor supply and all of that good stuff. Just, we want to send our ships abroad with Europe's goods and bring money them- Money back. Yeah, bring them back with cash and exotic stuff that we can then sell back to Europe. Like, that is all we want. Shut down the army. We don't care. Well, you know, one of William's power centers was the army, and so he did not want to give that up. So he went so far as to lay siege to Amsterdam with 10,000 men oh in my 1650. God. Yikes. The regents relented, but in what I assume is sort of a stroke of luck for everybody, William contracted smallpox in the fall of 1650 oh, no. and died. Okay. Willie too. Willie out. too out. Uh, his son, who would be William III of Orange was born a week later. Yikes. What timing. Right. So there is a fairly ruthless saying in politics, never let a crisis go to waste. So the nobles, through their state's party faction, happy for the end of the war and happier still to be making money hand over fist, instituted what came to be known as the first Stadtholderless period. 
The government passed an act of seclusion stating that having a supreme head of government would be harmful to the true liberty of the nation by which they meant themselves. They never in this period mean all the people at the bottom. That is not a thing. Well, and they've also seen years and centuries and centuries of what happens when a tiny, tiny child assumes the throne and all the power grabs that do happen. True that. Um, And it might be worth noting that uh, William III's mother was Mary, Princess Royale, the daughter of Charles I in England. Interesting. So there, yeah, it it could have opened the door to a lot of dynamics. Oh, so much. So a Republican slash anti-orangist politician, that's a thing, anti-orangist and orangist factions, politician and nobleman named Johann de Witt was elected, I think, by the nobles themselves. I don't think this was an era where they were asking the public to weigh in too hard. So he assumed a position called the Grand Pensionary, which in practice made him the Stadtholder by another name. It really did. He he was the leader of the Dutch Republic. But, King-ish. But yeah, he he made a show of like, he didn't walk around with armed guards. He like he tried to present himself as a, a man of the people. He was just a lawyer in The Hague. Just I'm just a servant here, guys. Not, you know. It's just a regular guy, everybody. Just, mm-hmm. But DeWitt's politics and interests were extremely pleasing to the elites and this prosperous merchant class. He pursued a foreign policy of peace because war is bad for the economy. And one of his close associates went so far as to recommend, I love this, replacing the lion on the Dutch coat of arms with a cat. Oh, I'm for it. (laughs) So the moneyed interests in Amsterdam and The Hague and Rotterdam were extremely happy. When Johann de Witt came to power, Oliver Cromwell over in England had quite recently launched the English Navy against them. This is the first Anglo-Dutch war. Um, The House of Orange backed the Stuart claims, and Oliver Cromwell, of course, had just killed a Stuart king. So it's nasty. Bit of a problem. Um, so DeWitt's top priority was negotiating a peace just just so the money could start flowing again. Like he just wanted to keep the elites happy. That was 100 percent of what he thought his job was. And he held that job for decades. Like it went pretty well. The years that followed the end of hostilities were extremely good for business in the Dutch Republic. And Johann de Witt focused on a robust naval force that would ensure that Dutch commercial access to ports around the world could continue unimpeded. Number one priority. There was still the matter of the existence of William III of Orange. And he's growing up day by day. Growing up. And the fact that among the commoners of the Republic, the thirst for an Orangist king to balance their interests against that moneyed elite was quite real. Like, at this point, you have guilds kind of mediating who can rise and who never will. The people wanted a champion against all of that. DeWitt ordered that William be made a a child of the state, like a ward of the state, and that, you know, the state would therefore take on his education. His mother, again, Princess Mary of England, had wanted him to have an English education, but DeWitt was like, you know, we're going to just indoctrinate him to think that monarchy is bad. Well, ward of the state also means you get that child's lands and monies. You get access to those. Ward of the state is a very financially beneficial thing for whoever holds that wardship. Interesting. That may be the case here. Yeah. Anyway, so they basically tried to indoctrinate him out of being a king, which failed spectacularly. 
In the 1660s, there was another Anglo-Dutch war, but the Great Plague and the Great Fire of London kind of tamped down the British capacity and enthusiasm for things like war. And to sort of, I don't know, drive the point home, Johann dispatched his brother Cornelis on a naval raid up the Medway River, and they destroyed a bunch of English naval vessels at Chatham. Oh, no. So they came to a peace accord the next year. That same year, 1667, Johann issued the Perpetual Edict, which abolished the office of Stadtholder entirely. And to him, this represented the full and complete overthrow of the House of Orange as a political project in the country. You can aspire to that post, but that post does not exist. Therefore, you're out of luck. Nothing. In 1668, Johann negotiated what came to be known as the Triple Alliance with England and Sweden. This was a mutual defense pact against France, which was then the Sun King, Louis XIV, was in charge. And he was in an expansionist mood and just thought, wow, those low countries look very, very tasty. Have you seen the tulips? Yes. (laughs) Have you tried gin? This gin stuff is great. (laughs) Okay, so... What Johann did not know is that King Charles II of England, the Stuarts are back, the uncle of William III, uh, had only signed on to this treaty to force an end to Dutch-French ties, and that he was actually conspiring with Louis XIV to jointly attack the Dutch Republic and install his relative as a stadtholder, a king, something. Shady. Yeah, and the... The Dutch relationship to the French at this time was complicated. They certainly feared the expansionist tendency, but Johann thought he could hold things in check. What they said about the French is that the French are a great friend and a terrible neighbor, mm. is how they described Interesting. it. All right, so let's keep in mind that Johann's military focus had been on protecting the sea lanes, and so the Dutch had been investing lavishly in their navy for many, many years. But their army had just been completely neglected. It was understood that war was coming. And in February of 1672, Johann was forced to cave to public opinion and appoint William III as the captain general of the armed forces. This must have physically caused him pain to do, but he did it anyway. 1672 is remembered in the Netherlands as the Rampjaar, the disaster year. Mm. The saying at the time, and this is... Dutch wordplay that I don't think I can faithfully pronounce, Um, but the English version is, the people were irrational, the government was helpless, and the country was beyond salvation. And this is 1672, and it's called the Rampjar? The, 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 yeah, the Rampjar, R-A-M-P-J-A-A-R, the disaster year. The disaster year. So, for instance, on April 6th, 1672, France declared war on the Dutch Republic. On April 7th, England did too. Mm. This is like the worst of all worlds. France invaded in June by land, of course. So they come up against this broken army that Johann had been ignoring for years and captured most of the southern part of the Republic pretty much right away. Meanwhile, the English Navy sailed in and blockaded the ports. I don't think that was very long-lived. Like, I, I think they were able to fight it out. But, it, I mean, panic, right? Like, everyone is panicking. And everyone is also blaming Johan for all of this mess. It's like, all Johan's fault. The Republic is about to be completely destroyed. We have enemies on all sides. This is 
the worst. There the were worst. like German armies helping the French. It was it was really bad. The Orangist factions, who now had been out of power for decades and watching this Republican faction gleefully grind them to dust, they were out for blood. I mean, there's no other way to put it. On June 21st, a would-be assassin stabbed Johann, leaving him badly wounded. So he resigned his office of Grand Pensionary. He'd been there for almost 20 years. And on the 4th of July, the government of the province of Holland named William III as Stadtholder. Oh. We're just going to bring it back, dude. We're just going to bring it back. So Johan foiled again. In August, Johan's brother Cornelis was arrested for treason. And as was the custom of the day, he was tortured to elicit a confession. To his credit, he did not break. He did not confess. So he was sentenced to exile rather than death, presumably. On August 20th, Johann went to the prison to help him prepare to leave, but a mob formed outside. The men were quite relieved when the Hague's civil militia showed up, right up until the militia opened fire on them. Oh my god. I am not sure whether it was the bullets that killed them or the mob that subsequently strung them up, mutilated their bodies, roasted and ate their livers. Oh! At least one of their eyeballs is said to have been consumed. It was gruesome. Barbecued eyeballs. Yeah, so while this was the end of the DeWitts, uh, it was not the end of widespread mob violence by pro-orange Dutch crowds who were egged on in part by the publication, William III published this um, August 15th, of a letter from King Charles explaining that this whole war thing is just because the DeWitts are so mean to my guy, William. Oh, no. So, you know, all of this presumably could be wrapped up neatly in a box and you get the guy you want running the country, running the country too. Like, Okay. Yeah. On August 27th, William III was given carte blanche to purge the city councils of the, the regents in order to restore public order. There were, there, were just, there were just protests happening everywhere, and it was a mess. Yeah, this is too much change all at one time. Right. Louis XIV's armies, however, they paused to allow William to take control of the government and begin negotiations with him. He wanted so much money to leave. He was going to rob them blind. William, however, while those negotiations were underway, activated a defense that Morris had devised and then Frederick Henry had built, which flooded much of the interior of the country. This is the Dutch waterline. It is a world UNESCO heritage site now. It's just an amazing... They basically turned the coastal part of the modern Netherlands, Amsterdam, The Hague... Into an island oh. the French army could not access. They just flooded the entire interior of well, the country. Well, that would stop an army from getting to you. Yep. So, yeah, the French army was stopped by the Dutch waterline defense at least until winter came. Oh, no, because it's August. <sighs> yeah, it was a cold one that year, Alicia. And once all that flood zone froze, I am not making this up. The French army pulled on their ice skates oh and God. started to head right across all that frozen it's land. Hans Christian Andersen, that war. Yeah, so a Dutch ambush sent them presumably skidding uh, back home. Uh, their forces, led by William, had other successes as well. The Germans bailed. Um, and then I think they actually went into Germany and committed some serious atrocities as payback. The Dutch did. Anyway, the German the Germans left, the French were kind of forced to head home, and yeah, by the end of winter, uh, Louis XIV had withdrawn his forces entirely, and then 
took himself to his fainting couch in Saint-Germain and would not be seen by anyone for some time because it was so shocking that the Dutch could beat him. The The Dutch just roasted a man and ate him. I don't think I'd put anything past the Dutch. The war did plot on for a few more stupid years, but the big game changer diplomatically occurred when William married his cousin, Mary Stuart, the niece of Charles II. In what feels very circular, given the Protestant Reformation origins of this story, he would then go on to depose his father-in-law, James II of England, the last Catholic king of the realm in 1688-1689. Amazingly, or perhaps not, no one was ever prosecuted for the brutal murder and cannibalism of the DeWitt brothers, an event that may be the goriest political act in Dutch history. The House of Orange would eventually become the constitutional monarchs of the Netherlands after Napoleon had installed a couple Bonaparte kings, his brother Louis, and then Louis's son Louis, I think. I think the son was king of the Netherlands for two weeks. Oh, perfect. Woo woo. And yeah, the Orange line continues to this day with King Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima fulfilling the roles since 2013, but also continuing the House of Orange's difficulty with leaving male heirs. Uh, Willem Alexander is the first Prince of Orange in over a century. Wow. And, you know, continuing in what has become a fairly lengthy tradition of Dutch Queen's Willem, Alexander, and Maxima have three daughters and zero sons. Perfect. So on they go. I love it. Let girls reign. Let girls get the throne for a little while. So that's the trashy story of the time the Dutch ate their prime minister, or grand pensionary, I suppose. But uh, yeah. How many trashy crowns? Who gets what? That was an awful lot of history, Stacey. Such a mess. So I feel like Louis XIV wanted like 16 million whatever the currency of the day was, to um, exit the cities that his troops had conquered and go home. Uh, That didn't end up getting paid out, I don't believe. But that seems like a good number to just sort of award generally. For all of it. Across the generations. Spanish Inquisition, come on. Like, the the whole thing of it. Just be tolerant of religious differences, everybody. No, that was not the... It'll save you a lot of trouble. 14th... 15th, 16th, 17th century in Europe. Sure was not. Holy cats. That was delightfully done. Thank you. You You're welcome. For that story of the Trashy Royals. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. We are going to be back next week with a brand new adventure for you. Continuing on our path of (laughs) our betters behaving so very, very very badly. badly. Yeah, hopefully uh, our next sort of gastronomical approach will be less uh, ug. <laughs> it's a good word, ug. Less iconoclastic fury. Yes. Actually, I th- we should have more iconoclastic fury, I believe. But anyway. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, spending your time with us today. Thanks for telling your friends about Trashy Royals and your kind reviews and ratings, your emails as well. We really do appreciate you joining us on this journey until we meet again. Don't eat your prime minister. No. Liquid smoke, man. (laughs) Yikes. Thanks again, friends. Can't wait to see you next week. Until then, bye, everybody. Bye, y'all.